Good morning, church. This morning's Bible reading is from Isaiah. It's chapter 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendour. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to St Stephen's. My name is Prash. I'm the Senior Minister. Very warm welcome to you. And if you're a new visiting, perhaps someone's flicked you the link in the last couple of minutes and you've tuned in, very warm welcome to you. We'd love to hear from you. We have a Connect card. I think Matt mentioned it earlier in the service. But uh, we have a Connect card. Use it. We'd love to hear from you. And, and actually, anything that comes up in the service is generally there's an opportunity and an option to re respond through that uh, online Connect card. So do utilise that. Uh, I think the link will be in the, in the feeds for the various social media platforms we use. Well, this morning, we are uh, in week three of Vision Month, where we think about our vision statement. We long to be a church made beautiful, diverse and large by the gracious work of Christ. We thought about the, 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 the last component of that vision statement, the gracious work of Christ in week one. Last week, we, we reflected on why we actually use the language of church, why we believe in the local church. And this week, next week and the week after, we're going to spend each week thinking about those three adjectives at the centre of our vision statement. 
before we do that, though, I have a little quiz. And kids, I know you probably embarked on your activities and your card making and all those things that are part of the kids pack if you received one of those. Before you do that, you can be part of this. I have, I have three images. They're from this building. Unfortunately, you can't be in it this morning, but they're from this building. Let me see if you know where they're from. I'll give you a moment. So here's the first one. Where is that image from? I mean, of course, it's a stained glass window, but do you remember which stained glass window it is? Uh, I'll give you a moment to lock in your answers around the household. Now, if you said it was the stained glass window on the door as you exit to go to morning tea, you'd be correct. It's actually part of the image of uh, Stephen, the martyr from Acts, uh, and of course, which the church building and church is named after. Here's another one. Hmm, where do you, this one's a bit trickier. Where would this be? Lock your answers in. Who's on a, who's on a streak? This is from the baptismal font. There's actually four of them. It's a little carved out cross and crown that's on the, on the font, on each of the sides of the font. Must have been 150 years old, that little, little, little icon that's found there. And finally, this one. Hmm, there's obviously a plaque. That's correct. And it's on wood. But whereabouts, do you know? Well... Have you locked your answer in? The answer is the pulpit, built in 1900. Uh, now, that one's a bit trickier because it's kind of small and hidden away, and we don't really use the pulpit on a Sunday morning at 9.45, but there it is. Now, why, well, you know, in our, in our community, if, you, if I say to someone, oh, I'm the minister at St. Stephen's on the corner of Sydney and Mowbray Rose, people say, oh, yeah, that's that beautiful old building. It really is, isn't it? 150 years old this year in September is the ministry on this site and this stone building is 140 years old. Now, that, it is beautiful, but we have a sense that if that is the only way people understand our church, we've missed something. They've missed something. And our church is missing something, isn't it? There's lots of beautiful buildings in England, for example, but there's something missing from them. Just being an architecturally beautiful building is not what we're longing for. So what's missing from our church, if that's all that we conceive of it? Well, when we, when we brought together our vision statement last year, one of the things we did was we looked at the promises that God makes for his people. And we said, we want to line up our vision statement in line with the promises of God. This morning's passage, Isaiah 61, is a passage that... Uh, encompasses one of the great promises of God. It's one of the great promise passages of the Old Testament. We did Isaiah earlier uh, this term, but we left out this passage on purpose because I knew we'd come back to it. And look at the promises that the, the servant makes to God's people in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 3. He says, I'm going to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They, that's God's people, will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. It's an extraordinary promise. It's an extraordinary promise that was on the screens there for you, which God is making about his people. In fact, here at St. Stephen's, when we looked at these kind of promises about what God is saying he wants to do for his people, we captured it in this word beautiful. 
We said God wants to make his people beautiful. And so we as a church want to be beautiful. Now, it's interesting, when we took that word around to connect groups and we asked them what they thought, some people loved this word and other people were very cautious about it. It's because the word beautiful is enigmatic in our culture. It's, it's hard to get a grasp on. It means a lot of different things. So what do we mean by beauty? And I guess more importantly, what does the Bible mean by beauty? Well, the Bible actually treats the concept of beauty quite significantly throughout the Scriptures. Uh, In in some Old Testament passages, Proverbs, for example, Psalms, uh, some of the the prophetic uh, literature like Ezekiel, beauty, the beauty of the nation is often something they're warned against, trusting in their beauty, trusting in their charm, that it's fleeting and it's passing, that outward beauty uh, is not enough. In 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, it's a crucial verse in understanding the idea of beauty. Uh, It's a moment where David, the future king of Israel, is being appointed. And God says to Samuel these important words. He says, do not consider his appearance. Because Samuel's gone to David's family. He's about to uh, choose the tallest, most handsome of the brothers. He says, do not consider his appearance or his height. Five rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And here in 1 Samuel 16, we see this this principle of play, that God is not concerned as much with the appearance, the the outward appearance. The first thing he's looking at is the heart of the person, the inner disposition. This idea gets developed. We find it pop up again in the New Testament in a number of places. Here in 1 Peter 3, we see another great example, verse 3 and 4. God's talking to wives, and he says this. He says, your beauty should not come from outward adornment. You can see the similarities, can't you, between what he was saying to Samuel about David, the king. Should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Now, What's happening there in Peter's letter is he's picking up this theme. Now, he's not saying, oh, we're all meant to be timid. That's not what he's describing. Here's what a couple of authors say, actually. They say, a gentle and quiet spirit is not a personality trait. That's important because when we talk about the inner person, we're not talking about just, oh, that we all have a similar personality. No, no. It is the quality of a person who meets adversity, slander, sickness, rejection, and loss, with a calm confidence in God. See, when God is looking at people, he is looking at people whose inner self is, is aligned to him, is, is resting in him, is trusting in him, is confident in him. And beauty starts with the inner person when we think about beauty in a scriptural way. Beauty starts with the inner person. But that's not enough. That's not enough. Look at what then goes on to be said in Isaiah 61. So he, make this, he makes this great promise about kind of how he's going to beautify God's people, how God's people are going to be made beautiful. But then look at what he goes on to say. Isaiah 61 verse 4, the next verse, he says, They, these, these beautiful people, will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They'll renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Rebuild, restore, renew. See, these people made beautiful by the Lord impact the world around them. They are not passive. Beauty is not passivity. 
You know, a beautiful heart is not someone who just kind of keeps it within themselves. I mean, of course, they are someone who's internally coherent, but it flows out outside. Internal beauty, you'd say, transforms our activity, actually. Beautiful people in the Bible are people who do impact and, and, and affect the people around them in extraordinary and profound ways. Their internal beauty, the change in their heart, transforms their activity, transforms their activity. Now, that's all great theology, so to speak. It's all great theory. But what is actually true, what, what we see is this is actually true. What the Bible is saying God wants to see happen actually takes place in the course of the history. There's so many examples. I've used this one before, but it's such a great example. It comes from the 4th century. So this is the early church. And this is a quote from Emperor Julian. He, he's not a Christian, in fact, he doesn't like Christians very much at all. But you can tell that from his quote, which I'm going to read for you in a minute. But the behaviour of Christians in the face of plagues and pandemics, in the face of social inequality, in the face of the, just the harshness of you know, those early century life, uh, is extraordinary. He writes this, The Christian faith has been specially advanced through loving service rendered to stranger and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor but for ours as well. You see, the behaviour of the early church reflects exactly this, that this inner transformation ha- takes, takes effect in the, their lives. It impacts the world around them. Renew, restore, rebuild. Those, kind of, those promises, are take, they're taking shape in the early church. We see them. This is the picture of beautiful community. It's so beautiful. There's no social media. There's no mass media to promote the church. But yet, the early church is, is behaving in such an extraordinary way that it has permeated all the way to the emperor of Rome himself. He's aware of their behavior. The lowest of the low are being heard of in the royal court. That's the kind of beauty that we're talking about. That's the kind of beauty. And I guess that says to us, this is not just a promise for the age to come. This is not just a promise that we say, yeah, when Jesus comes back, we'll be made beautiful. The reality is it flows into our lives now. And so when we went through that slideshow of pictures at the start, what's missing, of course, is God's people in action. A really beautiful church is not so much about its architecture or its infrastructure, but its people. God's people in action. God's people in action. The story that we just heard of, a 4th century early church, but the story of God's people through the New Testament as well, is a story of people who constantly serve, sacrifice, and give generously. It's the story in Acts. It's the story in 2 Corinthians 8 when Paul talks about Macedonians and their beautiful model of of Christian life. It's people who are servant-hearted, who are sacrificial, who are generous. And so for us, those three words are three great words to think about as we consider what the beautiful life of God's people here in Willoughby might be like. Servants, sacrifices, and generous givers. Do we sacrifice? Are we servant-hearted? Are we generous? Really generous? Are we really sacrificial? Are we really servant-hearted? There's lots of ways you can do this. I mean, it's difficult at the moment in a pandemic 
to, to take on some of these structures, but things, opportunities still remain. They still remain. Did you know that we run the community pantry every second Monday? Not tomorrow, but Monday week, it's on again. It's at St. Basil's Artum, and we partner with them. We, we send down a team of about four people. They have masks on, you know, they, they socially distanced. But what they do is they meet people from the local area who are really doing it tough. There's a lot of people who are doing it tough. Don't think that the lower North Shore is just filled with really wealthy, comfortable people. I mean, that's true. But there's also people who are doing it really tough at the moment. They turn up, we talk to them, we comfort them, we offer them low-priced goods. They pay $10, they get a bag of groceries that's worth about 60 bucks. It's through Anglicare. This is a wonderful opportunity to serve people, a wonderful opportunity. We have a thing called a community care team. This is a group of people who travel, out, travel uh, around and care for people. At the moment, one of the members is visiting people with the booklet and the handout for the week. You know, they say, they drop it off, they say hi from a distance. This is such a blessing to some people who have no contact with anyone else in our church. We want to be servant-hearted. We want to be sacrificial. We want to be generous. The ministry of this church continues even now because of the generosity of people. Service, sacrifice, generosity. You can do this right now. <clears throat> you can pick up your phone and call someone this morning. Check in on them. Someone you know is doing it tough, who's alone at home. Who can you care for? You can do it for the people in your, in your connect groups. You can care for them. You can make time for them. You can meet with them. There are opportunities Service, sacrifice, generosity. That's what it looks like to be beautiful people. That's what it looks like to live in light of this great promise that God's made. That's what it looks like for our vision to come about in our church, to be people who are genuinely transformed internally but affect the world around us. Now, of course, this is challenging. It's meant to be challenging. That's why it's in our vision statement. If it was easy, we wouldn't bother putting it in a vision statement. It just would be. But it is challenging for us. There's many parts of our life where it's just not the case yet. And the challenge arises for a number of reasons. First of all, it, it arises by the very nature of the promise that God's making. If you look at the promise and to whom this promise is offered, there's a challenge there for us. Look at what God says in verse 1. He offers the promise to these people. He's going to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent them to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim freedom for the captives and release of darkness for the prisoners. There's four groups there, poor, brokenhearted, captives, prisoners. All of those people are people whose lives are definitely not comfortable. They're people who are totally dependent. They're people whose, who, whose lives and ability to assert their own kind of autonomy, to choose their own path is restricted. They don't have any sense of... They can't control their outcome. But it's those people, actually, for whom this promise comes. See, God is not out about beautifying the comfortable. He's about beautifying the dependent. And actually, so for us to be a church that's made beautiful is to be a church recognising its dependence and actually being willing to throw itself into a place of dependence to throw off, to cast off the need for comfort and stability and self-reliance to become dependent on God. Because those are the kind of people who this promise is offered to. That's the first challenge of it. 
But the second challenge of becoming beautiful is a cultural challenge that we very much encounter. See, everyone wants to be beautiful. Everyone wants to be beautiful. Everyone wants to be looked at by other people and seen as beautiful. Not just, not just physically beautiful, but morally and virtuously beautiful. We want to, people to look at us and think we're good people. We're good people. We're morally good people. I love these. I've got a couple of images. I love this first, this first image. These guys are walking past. They're on their phone. They said, my Tumblr post... It probably gives you a sign about how old it is in terms of social media language. My Tumblr post uh, about feeding the homeless got 10,000 reblogs. It's so very satisfying to make a difference in people's lives. And of course, as they're walking past, there's a couple of um, guys doing it tough there. They're not aware of it. You know, we, we can think that beauty is about being seen to be beautiful. That's not it. You can be so captured about with the idea of being seen to be beautiful, you're not actually beautiful at all. We can be so consumed with winning the approval of other people. That's what really what beauty is about. I love this picture. <laughs> Whose outrage is it anyway? My outrage is better than your outrage. My outrage is strongest. You know, the, it's talking about the outrage culture. You know, heck, who can be more outraged about this particular issue? As if that, that sets us up. You know, when people are so outraged, outrage culture is all about establishing who's more virtuous than the other person. We can be outraged about things. Outraged about this social issue or that social issue. But deep down, actually, the only reason we're outraged is we just want to set ourselves up as more virtuous than another person. And we, uh, there's something about us that bubbles up in outrage that makes us more, more valuable, more, 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 more morally pure. But the problem there is that, that our, our search for beauty is not driven by a concern for those people. It's driven by a concern for our own approval. We become blind, actually, to the things that people really need because actually what's driving our actions is not their needs but our own needs, isn't it? And what's also challenging is that sometimes what it means to ascribe to the beautiful truth of God is not to ascribe to popular truth, to popular truth. See, when, when we sum this up, we want the beauty, not of human approval, but the beauty promised by God. This is very important. When we say we want to be a church made beautiful, that doesn't mean we want to be a popular church necessarily. They're actually slightly different things. No, we're driven by a desire to be made beautiful in light of God's promises. We want the beauty that God's promising and sometimes that beauty doesn't necessarily line up with the popularity of the world. We're not seeking popularity. We're seeking that God-given, God-promised beauty of the Scriptures. Now, as you reflect on that, the challenges inherent in the promises and the challenges inherent in culture and its vision of beauty, right? that vision of beauty that actually hijacks our ability to really impact and change people, how do we disentangle that? How do we get hold of get hold of the kind of beauty and be freed to really be the kind of beautiful people God wants? Well, if we go back to Isaiah 61, as we get to the last couple of verses, the speaker changes. For a large part of it, it's, it's the servant, what he's going to bring, what he's bringing about. But then it changes at the end, the last couple of verses, to the person who's received this gift. And this is what they say. For he... The servant, or for he, God, has clothed me with garments of salvation, 
and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. You see what's being said there? The person says, I've been made beautiful. How? By God. He has made me beautiful. He has made me beautiful. He has clothed me with his righteousness. Not with the righteousness that I've earned or worked for. And this is so important. We long to be a church made beautiful. How? By the work of God, the gracious work of Christ. You see, what's even more interesting actually about the servant in Isaiah 61 is the one who says he's going to bring this to us. The way he brings this great blessing, this great promise to Israel and to God's people generally is not the way we'd expect. Actually, in Isaiah 53, we looked at it when we looked at Isaiah as a book, but I'll bring you back to it again. Because in Isaiah 53, the one who promises beauty is extraordinarily not beautiful himself. This is what it says. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to it. This is the very servant who says, I'm bringing beauty. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. The servant who brings beauty is himself not beautiful. In the New Testament, Jesus when he goes to the temple, reads from Isaiah 61. He says, I am this man. I am this servant. I am the one who's come to bring beauty to those who are downtrodden, to the prisoners, to the captives, to the blind, to the oppressed. I am the one, says Jesus. And what we learn profoundly is that Jesus has come to bring robes of righteousness to people. But truly, he... He willingly casts off all the beauty. He willingly casts off all the beauty. Because Jesus is the one. The scriptures tell us when he goes to the cross, they literally strip him of his robes. They strip him of his robes. And he goes to the cross, this instrument of death, of humiliation, of mockery. He goes to it. So that those of us who put our trust in him, would have the robes of righteousness. Robes of righteousness. Jesus Christ lives the most beautiful life. Jesus Christ serves perfectly. Jesus Christ sacrifices perfectly. Jesus Christ gives generously. And he does it all at his own cost. And why does he do it? What is he serving for? What is he sacrificed? To what extent is he sacrificed? What is he giving? He tells us he's giving us the approval of the Father. He's giving us the approval of the Father. The great heavenly God, the one who sees all things, who knows all things, who understands all things, knows you, sees you, and because of Christ offers to love you, to treasure you, to value you, to see you with Jesus Christ's own righteousness, to see you as beautiful, exquisite. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. We long to be a church made beautiful. How? By the gracious work of Christ. Nothing is more beautiful than what you receive because of Jesus. Nothing is more beautiful than what you receive because of Jesus, who himself was stripped of all beauty. And you know what? That actually really does change us. 
It really changes, not just a legal fiction. Because once we come to believe the truth that in Christ we are deeply approved and loved and treasured and valued by God, we are free no longer to be ruined by the value and approval of others. We do not have to cast sideways glances to see what other people think of us. We can single-mindedly, wholeheartedly serve, sacrifice and give in line with what God wants of us. We can become people who have followed and heard God's word and thrown ourselves wholeheartedly into that. I don't know if you've ever had to put together furniture from a place like Ikea. Now, maybe if you're at home, someone, someone in the building knows that you're the kind of person who first step is not to read the instruction booklet. Of course, you've probably learnt that that never works. It never works, especially with Ikea furniture. You need to follow the booklet. There's all these strange bits and bobs, and unless you know what you're doing, you'll never put the thing together. But when you follow the booklet, when you follow the instructions, it's, it comes together, doesn't it? It's often functional and beautiful. When you're freed, you see, to hear God's word and to live in light of it, your life may not be popular. It may not be popular in that sense but it will be deeply intriguing and maybe even alluring because you're starting to live in harmony with the Creator's way. You're doing it the way it's meant to be done. We live in a world that is undergoing a great sexual revolution. Don't worry about the 60s. What's happening right now is more extraordinary than ever before. But you know, if you're a single person out there, who chooses to live in line with God's vision for life, who sees their value in in God's eyes, not in terms of your relational status or your sexuality, but you live because of that and you live God's way, it'll be intriguing to people. People will look at you and go, wow, what what is it that you found? Or, Or if we live in a materialistic culture, But if you're a family that's willing to live a humble life rather than needing all of the newest things and and living kind of the ostentatious life, people will look at your family and wonder, wow, they found something. They found something that we don't have. This This is the wonder of being transformed by the gospel. We become the kind of people, we become the kind of community that God wants to make And that community will always be beautiful. Always be beautiful. I'm going to pray for us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for your word to us. And we pray, Lord, that you would would grant us such a, a rich and deep experience of the gospel that we would know your approval for us, your love for us, that you treasure us deeply. And so we'd be freed from the approval of others and ready to live the way you want to live, sacrificially, servant-heartedly, generously. Make us the kind of beautiful community that you promise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.